0: A seat. It's wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. Uh, I invite you to grab your notes out of your handout. You'll see that we are continuing a series on the book of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them up to Galatians. We'll be in chapter 2 today, just a good old-fashioned Bible study. Very excited about the work that God is uh, doing in our midst. Now, just to recap how Pastor Pat started this series last week, he talked about Galatians. It's actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in a series of churches that are in a region called Galatia. So we have kind of a map of what that area looks like, and you can see some of the uh, cities, Derby and Iconium and Lystra and Pisidian Antioch. These are some of the cities that Paul had actually done mission work in He had taught about Jesus, the grace that's available in Jesus, the love of God shown and revealed to us in Jesus and started these churches with young believers in each of these contexts. Well, now this is many years later, and so he's writing a letter coaching and shepherding these believers in these churches in the region of Galatia. Now, I do want you to know one of the reasons why we would take time to go through a study like this at Overlake is because we believe that God was speaking through the Apostle Paul. He was teaching them incredible truths that they needed to know so that we can apply those same truths into our lives today. So that's why we're doing this. I'm excited about what God's up to. In chapter 1, he kind of starts the ball rolling, talking about what the gospel is and how we, met. we want to stay true to the gospel. He talks a little bit about The journey that Jesus has had him on from when Paul became a follower of Jesus and how Jesus kind of led him and and he was able to meet Peter and James and then he went off and was doing all this preaching and teaching and starting churches and it was kind of a cool little journey, Paul says. In Galatians 2 verse 1 is where we start. So let's just jump right in. Paul continues the story of his own journey of grace. He says, Then 14 years later, so 14 years of being on mission, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. That was really good news for Titus. Titus was very pleased uh, by that news. But I want to just unpack that passage just a little bit. So Paul's talking, and in verse 2 he talks about that he wanted to go to Jerusalem because God was prompting him to go. God was revealing that to him. And just by way of general statement, we do talk about our faith is a relationship with a risen Savior. So what it is that we enter into when we believe in Jesus, we now have a relationship of love with a God who is alive and who is active and who is present with us. And so this idea of prayer, some of us think about having a prayer life, prayer is not just submitting to God a list of petitions. Prayer is not just a, a monologue that we, we sort of dump on the Lord, everything we're thinking and feeling, and, and then we're done, then we leave. It's a dialogue that we want to go ahead and, and we want to praise Him, we want to make sure that, that we uh, do offer petitions, things that are near and dear to our hearts and to those that we love. We want to make sure that we're in accordance and agreement with the Lord, and then we also want to listen to Him. We want to receive his prompting and his leadership, and that's why we call this a relationship. And Paul's just modeling that there. He also talks about a person named Barnabas. If you're familiar with the story of Paul and how he became a follower of Jesus, Barnabas was the first person to believe in Paul. You might remember that Paul's name was Saul, and he was a zealous follower of Judaism, so much so that he had become a terrorist against followers of Jesus, and so Saul, right, he, he was pursuing Christians to kill them when Jesus met him. And then his name changed to Paul. And the first follower of Jesus to get over their fear and to meet with him and to be, befriend him and help him in his spiritual journey was Barnabas. Barnabas, by the way, means son of encouragement. And Barnabas was encouragement to Paul. We all need friends like Barnabas. And then the last thing that we see in this passage is that Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders there to make sure that we were in agreement, he says. And this is so beautiful. It's so beautiful because when followers of Jesus are in agreement, when we are in harmony, when we're in unity, powerful, powerful things happen in the kingdom of God. And, and this does not mean, by the way, that we need to be in uniformity, it just means that we need to be in unity, that we're all following Jesus together, that we're all loving and we're striving, pushing in the same direction. Paul had been off preaching for 14 years, now he wanted to kind of come back in, touch base with the leaders at the church in Jerusalem, make sure that everyone is still on the same page. Then the last phrase is he talks about circumcision. They agreed with me, he says. They didn't even force Titus to be circumcised. And and the reason why he brings this up is because it's going to be a huge issue. So let's continue reading. Verse 4. Even that question, the question of Titus' circumcision, came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Just You might want to circle the word freedom. It'll come up from time to time. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So what Paul is doing is he's identifying... One of the ongoing conversations that was happening in the first century. As this movement of Jesus followership began, there was an ongoing question. And the question was, and you might want to write it down so that you can understand what this whole passage is framed out of. The question was, how much Jewish law should we adopt into Jesus followership? That's the question. And it's actually a really good question. I want to make sure that we don't have, you know, sort of uh, haughty hearts over, you know, oh, how silly for them to wrestle so hard on this. No, no, it was a really good question. Why? Because Jesus, remember, was a Jewish practitioner. He was born into the Jewish context and culture. He was actually quite faithful uh, to the the pathways of uh, Judaistic formation. That's not right, but you know what I'm saying that he was in that pathway. He was a rabbi and, uh, and, and a, a very popular rabbi in, in the Jewish tradition of which there are many rabbis. And so, so one of those things, now Jesus also bucked the system too. And, and it's one of the things that as Jesus followers, we see, oh yeah. No, he did things like heal on the Sabbath which the Pharisees thought that, that was a, a, a breaking of one of their traditions. Uh, you know, the, the law was no work on the Sabbath, and, and yet Jesus healed on the Sabbath. They called that work. And so he was a constant challenge to these, these Jewish traditions and things like that. But it's a question that, 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 that was wrestled over in the first century context. And so you have Paul, and we're going to hear from Paul's perspective But you also have this other group, they were called the Judaizers, and you might want to write that down, spell it any way you like, Judaizers, and the Judaizers, they were the ones that said, yes, you have to obey Jewish law. So yeah, you can follow Jesus, Jesus is a good thing, Jesus, yeah, you know, there's a lot that's good about Jesus, but continue to follow Jewish law. So they were kind of trying to adopt Judaism into this new movement of God Following Jesus Christ alone, so you can tell that uh, that that's what um, that's what Paul is g- going to go after there. All right, so let's keep going. We're now in verse six. Paul says, "And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites." Um, That sounds just a tiny bit boastful to me by Paul. Like, I didn't care who they were. God has no favorites. Maybe, you know, that's between him and the Lord. Here's the thing. I think it's true that God has no favorites, and so you might want to underline that. But I think a different way to phrase it and a way that, that I would perceive it is that every person is God's favorite person. So, yes, it's true that God does not favor one above another, but God favors us all uniquely, individually, and especially. Okay? So, that's just, that's just me. That's just my way of thinking about it. And you might want to argue, and so you can come up afterwards. We can have a lovely argument. You're wrong. But, but I just want to set that context. Okay, so... He keeps going. He says, instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as the pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. It's just a beautiful passage right there. Wonderful. It's all moving in the same direction. It's beautiful. And so it's a, this is a praise report. And in fact, if you want to read about this council that Paul is talking about, you simply need to go over to Acts chapter 15 because uh, the writer Luke, is the doctor who's kind of chronicling these acts of the apostles, he, he describes this exact council. And in the midst of this council in Jerusalem where Paul's there and they're having this conversation, Peter stands up in front of everybody and he agrees with what Paul just wrote here. Peter's in absolute agreement with Paul. In fact, this is what Peter says, Acts 15:11. Peter says, "We believe that we are all saved in the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus." And if you circle the words undeserved grace, you'll see that there's a bit of a redundancy there, right? Because grace is always undeserved. If it's deserved, it's not grace. It's a wage. It's a reward, but it's not grace. Grace, by necessity, is undeserved. And what Peter is saying is we're in agreement with Paul. Grace is how we are saved, and it's grace through faith in Jesus alone, right? That is the story. The church is in agreement and harmony. If you're filling in the blanks, it's only Jesus Matters. Only Jesus matters. Some of you may be just new to Overlake. You wonder, hey, what kind of church is this? What do they go after? We're a very Christ centric church. We talk about Jesus all the time. he's He's the hero of every conversation, every sermon. You go, why is that? It's because only Jesus matters. He's the source of our faith. He's the source of grace. He's the source of salvation. This is why we go after Jesus. And it's without apology that we do so. Why? Because only Jesus matters. Okay. So, thank you, Mom. Woo! All right. So, he says, because only Jesus matters... Keep on in your helping the poor. And Paul says, and I've always been eager to do this. In fact, we see this as a mark of first century Christianity, that everywhere the church took root, everywhere the church flourished and expanded and exploded, it was because there was this incredible uh, commitment to charity and to justice and to personal compassion toward the poor. And I just want to celebrate you for a moment over, Like this is one of the reasons why I love you as a church family. I've, I've never thought that I would have such an intense love for a church family like I have for you. And part of the reason is because of your ongoing commitment to serving personal compassion and practical help toward the poor. And we see this, I have just saw this, in terms of how Overlake partners with the persecuted church in India. I, I know this is how Overlake is partnering with, on the ground by caring for street kids in Katali, Kenya, or working in townships in South Africa, or, uh, Um, uh, working with trafficking victims out of Pattaya, Thailand. We see this at home in our safe parking ministry, special delivery. We see this in our commitment to the homeless teens, the backpack ministry. And the list goes on and on and on. Orphan care. I mean, there's just so many ways. So Overlake, good on you. Way to go for that. I just, I'm so, yeah, thanks again, Mom. You guys can always, like, cheer for great stuff that God's doing in our midst. It's wonderful. All right, let's, let's continue here. Paul now seems to change his tone. So see if you can catch the tone change. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. Can you see how the tone has maybe changed just a little bit? When he first arrived... He ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Wow, right? Wow! Oh, man. And what's going on here? What's going on is that Peter, he believes what he said in front of the whole council, that you don't need adherence to the Jewish law. We are saved through grace by our Lord Jesus Christ. End of story. And so when he's in Antioch, and Paul's there, and these other believers are there, all these Gentile followers of Jesus are there, and so Paul's eating with them. By the way, this was one of the Jewish traditions. The Jewish rules and regulations was uh, a circumcised Jewish practitioner could not have a meal with an uncircumcised Gentile. That was one of the traditions. Peter had already, by the way, broken that tradition and he had already started a new pathway in this new thing, this this new expression of faith in Jesus alone. But yet, as he's in Antioch, he's eating with the Gentile believers and then some buddies of James come, the Judaizer group. And now Peter experiences peer pressure and so he turns his back on the Gentiles and now he will only eat with the circumcised believers. Lest you think that is just no big deal, I want you to think about the cool kid table in the junior high cafeteria. I want you to think about the, the kind of pain that originates when you're not allowed at the cool kid table. This is a true story. When I was in ninth grade, I started at a new high school. Uh, my dad was in the military, so we, were, we had moved to Quantico, Virginia. I'm starting my first day at Quantico High School. I arrive at the lunch cafeteria, take my tray, empty table. I sit down by myself at an empty table. Why? Because I have no friends. Can I have a collective awe? Have no friends. (laughs) I sit down at this table. Within five minutes, three or four other students come to the table, sit down around me, and inform me I cannot sit at this table This table is for their friends alone. It was the cool kid table. So I got up. This is a true story. I walked around the cafeteria with my tray for a bit. And then I put it down, and I walked out into the hallway because I did not have any other place to sit. Thank you. (laughs) I especially want to thank my dad who is here today. (laughs) You're tracking with me, Dad. I love it. So, I'm over that experience, just so you know. Like, I don't keep going to therapy about this thing. (laughs) Just give me a minute. No, I'm fine. But I will say that it was the most painful thing anyone has ever done to me. Bold-faced rejection is ridiculously hard to deal with. And that's what Peter did To young Gentile Jesus followers. And Paul says, I had to confront it. I had to call that out. There is no way that's part of following my loving and gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so he keeps going. Look at this. He says, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others. Now, check this. We actually, often when we practice confrontation, we do this privately, and I think it's a good thing to do privately. It's following Matthew 18 and the words that Jesus talked about. When we need to confront another person, we need to do it privately. I think the reason why Paul did it publicly is because he wanted to not only confront Peter in Peter's sin, but he also wanted to confront the sin that all of these other people that had followed Peter in this sin had also accomplished. So he was actually confronting the whole group, but he was speaking specifically to Peter as the lead in this thing. He said, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions which you have already left? He's saying, this is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy for you because you have known that the Jewish law was not the pathway to salvation. This was not what God's best was. It was faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And you've said this publicly and it's what you've taught. So all your messages are about, Peter, this is what you believe. You follow Jesus and you've left the Jewish law. So why are you having Gentile Jesus followers go back to adherence to a Jewish law that you yourself have vacated hypocrisy and Paul calls it out right there and by the way he's really perturbed that you're treating Peter that you're treating these new Gentile believers poorly right? there's a personal element of this too so what's interesting to me is that Paul sounds so unshakable here and I'm so glad that he called Peter out for this and, and specifically, the thing that he's talking about has to do with circumcision, because Peter is now only gonna eat with the circumcised. He's gonna leave behind the uncircumcised. I just wanna be really, really clear, friends. Today, 2,000 years later, circumcision is not an issue in the church. It's just not. We, we don't, or circumcised or uncircumcised, it d- doesn't matter. We don't care, we don't check, it's not a deal, okay? <laughs> But it was a big deal back then. It was a big deal back then. And so Paul just with such strength, it seems, right, with such boldness, he says, Peter, you're acting like a hypocrite, and I'm going to call you out in front of these other people that are following your lead. And so he does, and it's good, and I'm glad he did that. Now, what's really interesting to me is that one chapter later in the book of Acts, Paul is traveling through Galatia. He meets a young man named Timothy. Timothy is this super young, cool, hipster follower of Jesus. I'm not saying that the Jesus he followed was a hipster. I'm just saying that Timothy was like young and hipster and cool, well thought of by everybody. And so Paul invites Timothy to come with him on a mission to preach the good news. And so here's what it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 2. Timothy was well thought of by all the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Where Lystra and Iconium? They're in Galatia, the same region that Paul's writing this letter. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. What the what? What? There are two things that are extremely painful about this passage of Scripture. The first is that Timothy as an adult is circumcised And then begins a road trip with Paul. Get up on that donkey, Timothy. Come on, let's go. The second thing is that out of deference to the Jews of the area, Paul is going to circumcise a follower of Jesus who's a Gentile. How is that any different? Then Peter, out of deference to the Judaizers, begins to live by their traditions and rules and forgets the uncircumcised Gentile follower of Jesus. It's not different. That's the answer if you were looking for it. It's exactly the same hypocrisy. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because there's a few things to note. First thing to note, if you're reading through the Bible, you need to know that it is not just filled with things that we should do or ought to do or or should strive to do. It's filled with what's actually happened in the followers of Jesus. And sometimes those things are great things, things that we should model. But other, other times, they're just things that happen because they're also fallen human beings, just like you and I are fallen. And, and so Paul needed grace from Jesus in this moment, and Peter needed grace when he had his hypocrisy. And, and by the way, if, if you're just new to church and you're thinking, see, now I, I see twice the pastors talking about followers of Jesus being hypocrites. Listen, just look around. There's hypocrites all around you right now. Right, And this is not an unusual church. they are hypocrites. Hypocri- hypocrisy. Hi- hypocrisy is a uniquely human characteristic. And every single culture and every single person and every single sort of group of religious or any kind of practitioners filled with hypocrites. Why? Because human beings are notoriously inconsistent. You don't have to look too far to find examples of hypocrisy. Just look in the mirror. Right? We say things one day that we do totally different things the next day. We say things to our kids, you need to do this. We know full well we didn't do that when we were kids. That's called good parenting, by the way. <laughs> Friends, I just want you to understand, this is, uh, uh, hypocrisy is everywhere, throughout all of history and every corner of this globe. I was just in India. And in India, the Hindu religion is the, is the dominant culture religion in India. And just like in all religions, there are people who follow Hinduism to the very strictest degree, with the, with the utmost of fervency and dedication. And there, there was a group, I, ju- I just heard about this, in fact, I personally spoke with the father of the individual in this story. There, there was a group of devout Hindus, who, by the way, a tenet of their belief is that life is sacred, all life is sacred, so sacred that we will not kill an animal to consume it, because all life is sacred. This life force kind of a thing is sacred, and, and there's all other tenets, religious tenets of this belief. And yet, these people who believe that life is sacred found a 17-year-old boy whose father was the pastor in a local church, and they ripped him apart limb by limb. They killed a human, and yet a tenet of the belief is that life is sacred. Friends, that's hypocrisy, and I'm not trying to run Hinduism down. I'm telling you that it exists everywhere, and it's one of those things where we we, we look at Paul, we look at Peter, we understand, oh, they had expressions of hypocrisy. So do we. And so we come to the Lord when we see these things, and we ask his forgiveness, and we ask him to make these crooked lines straight, right? Because we know we're a part of the same problem, okay? So I I do want you to know this, that there is a negative power in the religious spirit, and there is a religious spirit everywhere. And it has a negative power to suck us in, and it sucked Peter in, and it sucked Paul in, it sucked those those practitioners of Hinduism in, because here's what the negative power of religious spirit says. The religious spirit says, this is a thing I do to be right with God. That's what religion is. Things I do to be right with God. Now, let me tell you why it's so negative. It's because I I do these things or I don't do these things. I eat these things or I don't eat these things. I pray this way or I don't pray this way. I sacrifice this on the altar or I don't sacrifice something. It doesn't matter what it is. It's I do these things and so I am right with God. And here's why it's negative. Because it creates a self-righteousness and it creates a sense of judgment and condemnation and violence against the other. Anybody who looks different, acts different, believes different, anybody who practices different, that is the other. And the more fervent I am in my religious spirit, the more I am prone to hate and violence against the other. And Paul was guilty of that when he was a practitioner of Judaism. So here's the fill-in. Religion has very little to do with God. Religion has, some of you are writing that down going, I did not think I would write this today at church. Religion has, it's ironic. We'll talk about a few ironies today. Religion has very little to do with God. And I'm not just talking about the Hindu religion or Buddhism or pagan religions or the Muslim religion or I'm talking about Christian religion too. And and the reason is because the religious spirit is anti-grace and it's insidious. I'll give you one example from the Christian tradition. So last week, I told you I was in India. I, I spent some time with an incredible pastor, and I mean it. He is an incredible saint of the Lord, and God is working through this man in powerful, powerful ways. It's, it's wonderful to watch, and it was an honor to be with him. But as we're talking about how we practice our followership of Jesus together, he he told me, and, and, and I forget the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of, Every day, he sits down quietly in the morning before the Lord, and he spends some time in prayer, and he spends some time in the Word. And then he said, and when I spend that time and invest that time with the Lord, he said, the entire rest of my day feels blessed by God. And if I have to miss that because of travel or because of an early morning meeting or something, if I happen to miss my time with the Lord in the morning, I feel I'm under the judgment of God all day long. Now, friends, that's the religious spirit. It's called legalism. Bless you, by the way. It's called legalism, and it's insidious because what has it done? If I do these things, I'm right with God. If I don't do these things, I'm not right with God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. If you look at my life, you'll see that virtually every morning and certainly almost all mornings that I have any space at all in my window of time, I always try to start with the Lord. I always try to start in the Word. I always try to journal, and I always try to pray. This is something I think is really good. I would call this soul care. That's why we talk about it at Overlake, and we encourage it in all of our ministries. And and the reason is because I want to learn from the Lord's word and I want to learn how I can bring my life underneath its authority and what it looks like for me to see how in my behavior I can help bring the kingdom of God wherever I am. I want to talk to Jesus in the morning that helps me talk to him for the whole rest of the day, off and on, all day long. So there's all kinds of wonderful value in spending time and quiet time and devotion and prayer. So please don't misunderstand me. But we do not spend time in the word to be right with God. We do not spend time in prayer so that we will be right with God. If that's what we're thinking, then we have rebuilt a system of religion when Jesus himself has torn it down. You see, religion has very, very little to do with God. Okay, so here's the next verse. And again, Paul is continuing his conversation with Peter in this passage. He's saying to Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. I, I, I think it's interesting that he puts sinners in quotes, because what he's saying is, this is what we used to believe when we were part of the Jewish religion. The Jewish religion taught that the Jews were God's favored people, and everybody else, called Gentiles, were sinners by default, right? And so that's why he says sinners. I used to believe this. I don't believe it anymore, but that's what I used to believe, And then he keeps going. He says, uh, actually, this is one chapter before when he's talking about what he used to be like. He says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. See, this is, he's talking about what fervent religious adherence breeds. And this has more to say about dominant culture value than it does about God's heart, right? If, if you look through the history of humanity, you will see a scene play itself out again and again and again. And it's the dominant culture decides who's in, and everybody who's on the margins is out. And so the names change throughout all of history, but the game is exactly the same. And so what Paul is saying right here to Peter, he's saying, look, where the dominant culture is Jewish, everybody on the fringe is out. So Gentiles are out. This new Christian movement is out. That's just dominant culture. Jews are in, everybody else out. Then in the Roman Empire, where Paul's doing his preaching, it was the pagan culture. So pagan culture was in, everybody was out. Everybody else was out, specifically small groups of the Jews, small groups of this new followership of Jesus. You look in India, where I just was, what's the dominant culture? Hinduism. So what's on the outside? Christianity is being persecuted. Uh, Muslims are on the fringe. The, the Sikh community is on the fringe. Hinduism's in, everybody else is out. How about America? What's dominant culture in America? I'm, I'm gonna say Christian, right? Christian is the dominant culture in America. So who's on the outside? You hear a lot of rhetoric, just kind of floating around the airways, right? The, the Muslims talk about the uh, immigrants. I just read last week that anti-Semitic hate crimes are up this year 56% over all of last year. Right? The Jews are now a, a, a small... So dominant culture, everybody else out. This is, by the way, please don't misunderstand. This is not how it should be. This is not how it ought to be. This is not what I'm preaching. I'm telling you, this is how it is, and Paul's calling it out. Right? Religion has very little to do with the heart of God, specifically because Jesus tears this all down when Jesus says, I came for everybody. I died on the cross for the sins of all. I love everybody, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, by the way, because everybody is made in the image of our heavenly Father, And and Jesus is saying, this is not even a new concept. I'm just revealing the heart of God that God himself revealed all the way back in the book of Genesis when he said to Abram, I am going to bless you, and then you're going to bless who? The nations. You're going to bless all of the people in all of the world. This is what God's heart is all about, and this is why we're talking about grace. Okay, verse 16. Paul says, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. Look at this next line, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Would you please underline that? He's saying religion will not help us. Adherence to law does not make us right with God. And it doesn't matter what religion we're talking about. Paul's obviously talking about the Jewish religion right here, but you can substitute any religion, including stuff you're making up on your own, right? That that adherence to law does not make us right with God. Verse 17, he says, But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we've abandoned the law, would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not, he says. Rather, I'm a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. Here's the filling. Grace is what saves us. Grace is what empowers us to live for God. Grace is what saves us. Grace is what empowers us to live for God. This whole series is called Filled with Grace, and this is the key note that Paul is going to come back to again and again and again. Religion is what you do to be right with God. Grace is what Jesus has already done to make us right with God. And Paul is arguing that Jesus has done everything required. Jesus has done everything necessary. That Jesus is how we're made right with God. And Jesus is the only one who provides this grace for us. So it's beautiful, beautiful, good news. I just love the irony. Paul says, I had to die to the law so that I might actually live for God. That's ironic. I had to die to this religious spirit so that I could live in the love of grace. I could reveal the love of grace. I could could live this life that Jesus has lived for me. He keeps going. Verse 20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. I love this passage. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me. And who gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if by keeping the law, or if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Man, that's so powerful. So the first thing he says is, look, my old law-bound self is crucified with Christ on the cross. For some of us, that's what we could say, our old religious bound selves that have been crucified with Christ. For others of us, we say our old sin bound self, right? Sin is a form of a burden that we have to follow sometimes. And so my old sin bound self, that's crucified with Christ on the cross. And then he says, Christ lives in me. Paul's prayer is that when you look at me, when you look at me serving, when you look at me preaching, when you look at me on mission, I don't want you to see Paul, I want you to see Jesus. And we use these phrases all the time. We invite Jesus into our heart. We know that he comes and dwells within us when we believe. We talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus, right? We know that this is a, a powerful reality that Paul's talking about. And then he says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. What does he mean? He means if there was any other way for us to be made right with God, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross, If there was any other way, if we could do it on our own, then Jesus would not have had to suffer and die. But because there was no way, now we receive the work that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Can I get an amen for that? Do you see, he's saying, look, the religious spirit keeps on telling you, no, no, if you just do this, if you just don't do this, If you just do this much, if you just give this much, if you just serve this much, if you just, whatever it is, you can do it on your own if you just. And Paul says, no, it's impossible. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. This is the sum total of the gospel of the good news. uh, Pat said last week, there is only one gospel, and the gospel is Jesus. There's only one good news. The good news is Jesus. You cannot do enough on your own. I cannot do it. It's not our merit that will cause us salvation. It is only the grace of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. And that's good news, right? Not good news that you can't do it on your own. Some of you, it feels really helpless. I can't do it on my own. That's not the good news. The good news is Jesus has already done it all. It's already been done for you in your place. Next verse, this is Ephesians 2.8, so a different letter Paul's writing, but he says the same thing. God saved you by his grace when you believe. So you just believe it. You just receive it. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. So we don't rebuild the law. We don't rebuild a pathway of works. If we don't rebuild religion of any kind, we don't want to treat grace as meaningless. In fact, let me give you an irony here. I've given you a few. The irony is that sin is not a threat to God's grace. You might want to write that down and mull over it and see if if you agree or not. Sin is not a threat to God's grace because grace is the antidote to sin. Sin is like a smudge on a typed written page. Grace is like an ocean of whiteout. That's for those of you who went to college before computers, by the way. (laughs) Sin does not threaten God's grace because the scripture tells us, where sin aboundeth, grace aboundeth more. King James for you. Ironically, law is the opposite of grace. Religion is the opposite of grace. The religious spirit is the anti-grace mindset. And that's why Paul is coming so hard against it here. And there are so many ways that we get sucked into the religious spirit. In fact, if you think about the ministry of Jesus Christ, who is it that he came against again and again and again? It was the Pharisees. He even said to the Pharisees, I wish you were blind because if you were blind, I could give you sight. But since you think you see, I can't do a thing for you, right? Why? It was the religious spirit had completely consumed them. They knew if they just did enough good stuff, they just adhered. adhered. If they were following the law perfectly enough, right, then they were the ones who were right with God. And Jesus says, I'll make you right with God. They missed it. So I'm going to wrap this up, and right now some of you are saying, thank God. <laughs> I'm going wrap this up right now, and I, I just want you to do a little bit of introspection. Because how I think we apply a passage like this today is I think we find the religious spirit that exists within us, and we crucify it on the cross of Christ. And so I just, I'll give you some examples. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I actually don't have persons in my mind that I'm talking about this. And it's not an exhaustive list of examples. But let me throw out a few examples that maybe you can start to see. Maybe the Lord will use it to start seeing in your life where you might be falling to the religious spirit. Some of you are religious fitness people. And you think that if you just work out enough hours, you run enough miles, if, you, if you're, you know, have just the right balance of protein and, the, you know, all that stuff, the ratios are right, enough veggies, that you, you think, I, I can just do this and then I, I'll be right. And there's something inside of you that's like, oh, if I just do it, I'll be right. And if you work out enough in a day, you feel right. And if you don't, you feel under judgment and... And then you start that insidious religious spirit if if you do live right for a week or two weeks according to your own law that you've built up. Then you subtly start looking down maybe on your spouse who's not living as strict as you are. You start looking down on other people who don't have the same kind of values. And so then there's that judgment and that condemnation that just builds up and it's religious spirit and you've got to crucify that thing. Maybe for some of you it's, it's humanitarianism. You, it, just every new cause and every new thing that you bandwagon that you can get on. And that's what makes you feel right. And you just, you feel, oh, yeah, when I'm there, I just, I, I feel like things are good. And I'm, I, if I can't do anything to make something better for somebody, then I just, I don't feel good. And then you start looking down on other people who don't get on the latest bandwagon. I don't care about, you know, organic, um, you know, lawn care. Like, I, like I, I, whatever it is. I, I do, but maybe you don't. But, but the idea is, if it's that religious spirit, and, and by the way, taking care of your health is a wonderful thing, and caring for other humans is a great thing. So I'm not down on those things, but they're not what make us right with God. So maybe for you, it's I need to be the perfect mom. I need to be the perfect dad. I need to build the perfect family. But it's religious. Like, like, like that's what makes you right. You've got to crucify that thing. Maybe it's a... a earning a certain amount of money to provide for your family. And once I can get to a certain level, then I'll be okay. Or achieving something, that next level in your career, whatever it is. And again, those are not bad things. But if, they're, if that's what makes you right, then crucify it. And maybe, and I know there are some, because I know Overlake just draws from so many wonderful traditions, but maybe you grew up and you were taught that you needed to pray a certain number of times every day facing a certain direction. That was the religious spirit. Or maybe for you it was, I, I could only eat certain things. I can't eat other things. Maybe for you it was, uh, you know, more, more like um, that old queen song nothing really matters. Your, your, your law was hedonism, right? If I can just do whatever the heck I feel like doing. And so that was the, the law that you put into place. And whatever it is, just hey, throw that on the cross, right? Crucify that. There are some religions, by the way, that die. And this is, this is normal. And as cultural progress happens, there are some religions that are no longer, nobody, nobody follows them anymore. For example, I have never in my life met an adherent to Greek mythology. Like that's just, like that's just not a part of. And even today, you know that there are many who are religious uh, practitioners of Judaism. But nobody shows up to sacrifice in the temple anymore. Right, so the, there, are, there are definite, there are seasons of religions that have power and that end up waning. But here's my thought. My thought is there are new religions born every day, many times in our own hearts. And we need to recognize those as religious spirit. We need to identify these as laws that will never make us right with God. And we need to crucify them with Jesus. So I'm going to lead us in prayer right now. I want to ask you to stand with me. There's going to be a a series of uh, statements that are coming up on the screen behind me. And what I would love for you to do is just glance at them right now. And friends, if you would affirm these statements in your own heart, if these are things that that you declare to be true in you today, that you want to stand with Paul, that you want to stand with a humbled Peter after being confronted by Paul, if, if you want to just stand in the ocean of the grace that's available in Jesus Christ, then I would ask you to recite these words with me, okay? And then we'll just go directly into prayer. Um, if you want to follow along with me, let's do this together. I can't do anything to make Jesus love me more. I can't do anything to make Jesus love me less. I trust Jesus has done everything required. I am saved by grace. I live for God in grace. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. And Jesus, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would make those statements true, that they would, they would sink all the way down to the very center of who we are, that we would recognize that we are not saved because of anything on our own merit, of anything that we have accomplished, of any pathway that we have been able to forge. These are not the reasons that you love us that you continue to pour your grace and your blessing out over us, that you wash us in your forgiveness again and again and again. We do not claim salvation by any means whatsoever save by the means purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are so thankful for you, Jesus. We're so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful for your love poured out again and again and again. We ask your forgiveness whenever we start to rebuild systems of religion. We don't want to be like that. And Lord, we know that that your forgiveness, your covering, that that's only one half of what grace provides that there's this whole other part of the empowerment to abundance that, that your spirit provides there's this whole life that is free and rich and wonderful and full and kingdom producing and, and grace is what empowers us to live that life and, and in the weeks to come Paul gets into that stuff and we'll get into it and, but Jesus right now we just want to say thank you thank you, thank you for your grace thank you for your love Would you allow us to praise you now and let our lives praise you for the good news, which is Jesus, for the gospel message, which is Jesus, for the grace that you have poured out on us, the grace by which we are saved. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.